Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2023. Time marches ever onward. My name is Amato, he, him, and with me are... Tori, they, them, and... Chaos Blue, she, her. Chaos Blue, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been more than a year, so I felt like I could probably bug you again to come and guest with us again. Yes, I'm so, so glad that you did. Obviously, I'm a huge fan of your show. Listen every two weeks, religiously. Uh, had so much fun last time. So That's more than I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's fantastic. So, of course, I am thrilled to be asked back. This is great. Amato and Notorious for not listening to himself when he talks. I used to listen to us religiously, but, <laughs> no, I just, you know, I've fallen off the wagon. You're listening to it every time you were recording it. <laughs> Never mind. Anyway. I guess in a sense. Thank you, Chaos Blue, for coming back to us. You were a wonderful guest last time, and we're excited to talk to you again. Um, especially, this is something that you brought to us, so I don't well, know. Yeah, let's talk about that just a little bit. I mean, one of the reasons I appreciate you, Chaos Blue, among the many reasons, is that you're conversant in a lot of fandoms that I'm absolutely not. And the Sentinel is something that's been on my radar since we started this, because when I was like looking into preliminary research, um, I saw that it had kind of a thriving zine scene back in the day. And I was like, oh, well, clearly people were writing a lot of fan fiction for this show. But I know nothing about and I don't know anyone who knows anything about it, and I don't care to like actually watch it. So, uh, you know, we haven't gotten to it for the many years that we've done this podcast. And when I contacted you about guesting, this is the fandom you proposed specifically, which makes me very happy. Yes, I am so, so excited to have the opportunity to go wild and talk about this one because this fandom particularly is so quintessentially classic, right? Especially at the dawning age of the internet when it was kind of a brand new thing and fandom online was kind of this brand new, you know, enterprise out there in the great wide universe. Um, so it's just a thrill to be able to talk about something so classic and, and meaningful to me personally. I will say that my involvement with, uh, the Sentinel is kind of backwards as I'll explain, uh, <laughs> later on in the show. Um, so, uh, you know, unfortunately I'm not the most knowledgeable about the Sentinel fandom, but I'm the most knowledgeable person that you personally know. Um, that so I am true. so, so happy to be here and talk about the Sentinel because for me personally, it, it, it's a, it's a fandom that means a lot. Well, you said you might talk about your backwards approach to the fandom later, but honestly, this is about the part of the show where I ask, so what's your involvement with the Sentinel and what's your history with this? So <laughs> I, it may as well be now. I mean, Tori and I, I don't think we, I don't think we have much to say. Had you heard of the Sentinel before I sent you this fanfic, Tori? No. There you go. Um, yeah. And I had preparation. I watched the first episode, but I don't think that told me much about. Uh, luckily, this fanfic was good about, I think, giving us enough context, especially if you watched the pilot. But. Yeah, yeah, I had never heard of it, which shocks me because it's right in that era where I was watching a lot of those types of shows on TV. I just don't understand how I missed it. It might have been also the era where there were quite a few of those types of show on TV, right? I guess so. But you'd think I at least have like a, one of those peripheral memories. Like, oh, yeah, I remember this existing. I did not remember it existing <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> so I think it's all you, Chaos Blue. But how did you get into the Sentinel? 
No, totally. And you know, Tori, you are not alone in not remembering or not ever watching the show because I didn't either. All right. The show ran from 1996 to 1999. I don't know where I was or what I was doing during those years, <laughs> but it was not watching the Sentinel. Right. Um, so I came into this fandom kind of backwards. Right. Um, I was uh, 18, 19, 20 in the early, early, early 2000s. Um, that was the era where I left home for the first time and I got my first apartment in the big city and had my first big girl job. I was so proud of myself, you know, but <laughs> the thing is that, right, you get home from work, you're tired and you just want something to do. And I didn't have anything to do, but I had my own dial up internet service hooked up at my very first apartment. So what do you do, right? You log into the internet and you start mm -hmm. looking for fan fiction to read because, oh, at heart, like, I am a fangirl. Like, I just have to have my fan fiction, right? So I actually accidentally stumbled on the Sentinel fan fiction one day. And um, this is why I say that my involvement in um, the Sentinel fandom is backwards. I've already cursed my audience on my podcast with this information, but now I'll curse yours too. Um, I have this horrible thing um, about men with long hair. That's just my thing. Long hair on men is like, the, you know, like I can't handle it. It's so great. I love it to <laughs> death so much. So I'm reading this Sentinel fan fiction for the first time. And the writer of this Sentinel fan fiction goes on this long description of Blair Sandberg, one of the main characters, and his gorgeous, long, curly, beautiful hair. And that's what got me, okay? Like, I'm not even going to lie. That's what got me into the Sentinel. I thought, okay, yeah. this is fantastic. Like, I can get behind this just off of the description of Blair Sandberg, right? That's, like, not even my thing. But seeing that first episode, his hair is amazing. Isn't it? I wish that was <laughs> like, my hair. It's so I beautiful. understand why they wrote so much about it. It's freaking gorgeous hair. Anyway. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. And, and, and it turns out that it was a huge thing in fandom like Blair's hair that was its own tag okay like people mm. wrote fan fictions all about Blair's hair there were warnings that people would put in their fan fictions about Blair's hair like if he got a haircut in the fan fiction oh, you had to warn for that you had to Whoa. warn for that or people would get upset yeah yeah it was Crazy. that big. but yeah but anyway like so I got into it so backwards that I, I had never seen the show. And I actually hadn't seen it until about 10 years ago when somebody finally put some select Sentinel episodes on YouTube and I could finally see what all the fuss was about myself. But, you know, when I was knee deep in this fan fiction scene, it was all through fan fiction. But mm -hmm. um, it's it's wonderful for so many, so many different reasons. You know, one of the reasons why I love this uh this fandom so much is because this was a predominantly boomer gen x fandom right like that was the era when folks that age were getting into stuff you know and you mentioned the zine scene it's because this was a boomer gen x fandom those folks were used to coming up in fandom spaces in the 70s and 80s and that's all you had back in those eras was the zines to proliferate all of the fan fiction and so when all of these folks got into the sentinel in the late 90s they brought that zine tradition with them and this fandom absolutely had this huge zine scene but of course the internet was kind of being a thing so well, a lot of these zines did end up being online versions of zines in addition to the print versions so you had both 
in the uh, the Sentinel fandom, and it was just really cool. I I uh, I went back to prepare for this episode, and I was looking at you know like these crazy lists of all these zines, and I swear there were over a hundred of them. You know, oh, yeah. like over a hundred zines. It was insane. So super super cool, just for that reason alone. I love it. What you're talking about is reminding me, like just what it meant back in the day to have fan fiction because like I think I was more of an anime kid than anything else and and you know in the early 2000s I was more like you know 11 12 13 but I was going on that dial-up internet and finding these websites and the only way to navigate you know is not search engines you click a banner on someone's site that you've already found and takes you to another site so that's how I found out about new anime Yeah, is looking at those websites, reading what people had to write about them. I never would see the episode, but I like knew about it and knew the characters. And I think that's just so interesting because now almost everything is a push of a button away. You just don't have that sort of way of navigating the world anymore. <laughs> You just know that, you know, back during that zine-based Sentinel fandom, there's there's got to have been someone who was doing the work to make copies of the tapes recorded off of TV to distribute to other fans who, like, wrote into them. You know, that's the sort of thing. I mean, you know, I'm speculating, but that's the kind of thing that had to happen for these fandoms. Because you couldn't just find the material, yeah. Mm. No, you're um, absolutely right. That was common for fandoms mm-hmm. back then. You did not have YouTube, you did not have file sharing, you did not have streaming, nothing, right? So if you wanted your friends and you to have content, you had to record it on VHS and ship it to your friends. Yeah, most of the time you didn't have a VHS release either. I mean, maybe if a show was super popular, right, then you right. could pay through the nose to like get it on official VHSs, but like, you know, it, given that we didn't know about the Sentinel, I doubt it had a very thorough physical release i don't know i doubt that it did yeah you know i couldn't even find it i was searching on my roku last night to be like is it finally on streaming services somewhere i mean come on right (laughs) roku has everything roku does not have the sentinel so i again had to go back to youtube last night and be like okay i guess i'm gonna youtube this stuff and i did it's on there all 60 whatever episodes are on there now um but yeah like it was such a such a small little show that you can't you can't even get it on vhs or dvd or anything like that I think that's a measure, like a metric for how niche something is, is if you can watch all the episodes on YouTube, because as soon as it gets too popular, it flags someone about the <laughs> licensing and they're like, take it down. Um, <laughs> that's a good point. But it's also like, I would be really disappointed if they took it down from YouTube because it's it would then be in that liminal place where it's too popular for YouTube, but not popular enough to be on any other streaming site. Well, if we're talking about the eras of Sentinel fandom, the fanfic that you chose is not from the zine era, and it's not really from the dawn of internet era either, right? It's it's probably on kind of the downswing settled into the internet era. Well, what year did you say this actually came out? This came out in 2003, 2003. and it was originally published in a e-zine, e-zine. Oh, called, yeah. um, oh, what was it called? It says My Mongoose Seasons of Love. Yep, is that like My Mongoose Seasons Mongoose? of Love. Uh, that feels like two different titles. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a main title, My Mongoose, and then there were different My Mongooses that were published over the years. Okay. So Seasons of Love was the particular one. It was two that, 2003 that this fan fiction was originally published. And I want to say that 2003 was, you know, in the middle of my, like, obsession with, you know, Sentinel fan fiction on a daily basis. 
Um, so this absolutely came out around the time that I was palling around with all the other sensual people online and having a great old time. So um, if we have time, I have a couple more things I want to say about oh. about the the sensual. Is that okay? Oh, we've got time. Of Sorry course, to rush yeah. you. <laughs> but like before you go on, I just have a really important question. Is it mongoose or mongoose? Mongooses or mongoose? <laughs> right? Right? I, it's got to be one mongoose, two mongoose, no? Red mongoose. Blue, blue mongoose, mongoose, yeah. That still doesn't tell me the plural motto. I, I'm saying the plural might be mongoose. Oh, mongoose. Oh, two mongoose. I get it. Yeah. All right. I like anyway. mongooses just because it's funner to say. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So anyway, the Sentinel. Yeah. So so anyway, a couple more things about this um, fandom that I think are just really cool and and deserve to be uh, mentioned before we move on to the fan fiction. Um, you know, even though this was a small little niche show, the fandom presence online was huge. Okay. <laughs> like the imagination that this series sparked because of the potential, especially for shipping, I think between Jim and Blair was just, I mean, it, it, it was huge. It was so huge. And, um, the the writing of the Sentinel fan fiction was so prolific that um, it actually spawned certain tropes that still exist in fandom today, in fandoms that have nothing to do with the Sentinel. Um, you know, we had some really interesting dark fic tropes, which is totally like up my alley. I mentioned last time, I love dark stuff. I have no squicks. So a lot of the dystopian dark fic tropes that I see pop up in other fandoms, I saw first in the Sentinel. Um, so that's interesting to see. And also the Sentinel guide concept that you see in canon in the Sentinel became its own trope, right? So you will see Sentinel guide trope fix in every other fandom online on AO3 to this day. If it's a big enough fandom, there are absolutely Sentinel Guide fan fictions written for it. And I just think that that's so cool that it was such a important part of online fandom back in the day that it spawned its own trope that exists mm. elsewhere now. And that's so cool. That's cool. And that's one of the major tropes that this particular fanfic is going to be dealing with. I'm, I'm not really well read enough on fan fiction to like have seen that before. But even when I was reading this fanfic, I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting dynamic that for them to be exploring. But I thought it was just like coming from the TV show and expanding. I mean, obviously it is. But I didn't know that it had like kind of taken on a life of its own outside of this. Oh, yeah. Mm. It's a huge trope now in every mm -hmm. other fandom. And it's funny because there are a lot of people who don't even know where it comes from. They're familiar with that trope because <laughs> they see it everywhere. But a lot of people don't even know where it even comes from. So, ah, you know, <laughs> now we all know, right? That's this, this is where that trope comes from. Now, the last thing I wanted to mention about the Sentinel fandom, and I think this is super cool because I'm a history geek, history nerd. Um, I wanted to, to just talk really briefly about the main Slash archive that existed back mm -hmm. in the 90s for the Sentinel. Um, it's funny because the very first Sentinel slash archive started up in 1996 when the show first came out, right? <laughs> um, but the this, the um, the archive was only run by one person, right? Historically speaking, we know that's probably not good because what if something happens to that one person? Everything gets nuked, and that's exactly what happened. This person went MIA; nobody could find her. 
And uh, and so, you know, what do you do, right? So three other members of the Phantom Sentinel uh, online community took over and they ported all of those um, stories from the first archive by hand to a new interim archive on Tripod in 1997. Mm. Um, and then in 1998 or nine, the servers for that Tripod site melted. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. Yeah, wiped out the site. So they had uh. to move it again uh, for a third time to Squidge.org, which was a lot more stable. Um, and when it moved over to Squidge.org, it was renamed the 852 Prospect Archive. That's how I knew it by. I was on that archive every single day <laughs> for years. Um, and it's to this day, I think if if you're thinking about old school Sentinel fandom, you'll think of the 852 Prospect Archive, which was the archive to be on. Um, one really cool thing about the 852 Prospect Archive is Astolot. Um, those of you familiar with the history of AO3 may recognize the name Astolot. Astolot was the founder of AO3. Oh, and yep. she happened to be very involved in the Sentinel fandom back in its heyday, wrote a lot of fix for it. She was the person in 1997 that wrote the first automated archive software script for 852 Prospect Archive. And it became the first automated fanfiction archive on the web predating fanfiction.net super super cool and the script for that archive became the um like the archetype for what they used for um coding ao3 so i thought that that was super super cool it actually just occurred to me that i had heard of the sentinel but only for that entire context that you just mentioned which is hilarious because it's just so peripheral. And <laughs> it also reminded me, we've been kind of dancing around this and we've been saying basically the same thing, but it is just so interesting that like a fan fiction culture can just take over and go so many places that the original media just didn't, never had in mind. You know, it's like the fan fiction culture is, for the Sentinel is more influential than the show ever was to our culture. Yeah. Also, I have to express my multiple years late chagrin because we did do one fanfic by Astolat, oh, like a long time ago. And I'm pretty sure I consistently said Astolat the whole time. And I, mm. I just didn't know how you said it. Did you? Uh, did I? I don't, I, don't I, said, I don't think I said Ast I, I don't think I said it the way Chaos Blue is saying it. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I could so be wrong. My, my apologies. I could absolutely be wrong about that, though. Like, I have never actually asked her. But um, that's how I hear most people say it, asked a lot. So that's how I say it. But, but uh, you know, if she wants to come correct us on the pronunciation, she's welcome to at any time. But but yeah, I just thought that that connection between asked a lot, the Sentinel Archive and AO3 was just phenomenal. I love that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing history. <laughs> it's fascinating. The webs we weave. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess now's when we move on to the fanfic itself, right? which, among other things, we have not mentioned the name of yet. And I guess we should. It's called Unsung by Legion. And yes, apparently originally published in the My Mongoose Seasons of Love e-zine. E-zines are something I see occasionally still, but not, not much. I think their time may have passed. No? No? I, I, see, peop I see people shaking their head. <laughs> yeah, they're making a resurgence uh, in the last couple of years. But yes, for a mm -hmm. long time, they were dead. 
I I, I'm glad they are because I think ezines are just kind of this lovely curated format that mm-hmm. I don't know. It's much more easy to navigate than I guess maybe I'm old, but I always complain about the kind of morass of the internet. It's just like, what do you even look for? It's, well, sure. Ugh. It's like AO3. It's great. And here's 3 million fanfics. Exactly. And you're like, okay, where do I even start? And then you start reading something and you're like, I'm going to give this a chance. And you read it for like 10 or 15 minutes. And you're like, nope, this is going nowhere. Or, oh, this is not actually completed. It just, I, I think uh... this relates to the vital fandom importance of Reckless. But I think I don't think we can afford to like get off on more tangents at this time. Um, we should probably talk about the fanfic. You are correct. Right. So the fanfic, correct me if I'm wrong, Chaos Blue, but it's got to be post-series, right? Because Blair's working with the police officially. Well, my understanding from reading the story is it is not post-series because Blair is a um, technically an observer the entire show. So he works at the police station with oh, Jim consistently okay. for the entire series. So um, he doesn't actually, I think, officially join... And I'm not even sure if he actually joins at the end of the series. I think he does. I, but, I read the end uh, of the series and it seems like they imply that or they're like, but he doesn't actually officially do it. Right. Um, I, I just misunderstood. Please look, most of my the Sentinel knowledge comes from reading a summary of the series um, at this point. I, I just misunderstood his relationship with the police department then. Okay, so it, it happens sometime in the series, I guess. Well he, well, he, in the first episode, sort of like teams up with Jim. So maybe they just mean that as like they're, partners in an abstract way not that um blair actually works for the police like this is our police officer and this is this guy who constantly hangs out with our police yeah. officer this is not a problem like that kind of thing uh, well if you want me to know. explain i can absolutely <laughs> yeah, explain why <laughs> because um you know tori you remember from the pilot right where mm-hmm. jim's uh senses come back online and this is a huge problem because if your five senses are going haywire on you like you can't sleep you can't eat every little thing light sound touch is like gonna drive you crazy right um so that's where blair comes in like in the universe of sentinels you have to have a guide or a partner is another word for it somebody to keep you grounded so that your senses don't go haywire on you and so you don't zone out in the middle of what you're trying to do and so um you know that's what blair is and everybody calls him at the station your partner you know oh jim your partner so he operates like a partner but he he's not an actual police officer he has an observer's badge so he's there almost every day helping jim solve cases keeping him from zoning out but he's not actually like officially part of the police force it's this weird thing that would never happen in real life but for the purposes of the show it's a lot of fun yeah, actually, I, I just have like a one more question about the context here, because like in the first episode, it's basically like you said, it's just Jim realizing he has super senses and agreeing to work with Blair um, and the police department. How much do they know about Jim's senses? Because in this fanfic, it seems like so, most people don't. But um, oh, my gosh, Simon does. Name is Simon. Excellent yes. question. Yes, excellent question. No, you're right. Nobody knows except Simon. Um, mm. You know, in that first pilot episode, Jim does confide in Simon and says, "Hey, something's going on with me. I don't know what it is, but like, you know, my senses are going haywire. Like, what's going on?" 
And Simon is the one that tells him, yeah, yeah, dude, that's weird. Like, go, go get yourself <laughs> checked out, you know? So when um, Jim finally figures out what's wrong with him and starts working with Blair on keeping his senses, um, you know, controlled, he does confide that to Simon as well. So at this point in the, you know, Sentinel universe, Simon's the only one who actually knows that, uh, yeah. that Jim is a Sentinel. The only reason I ask is because what excuse do they then come up with for Blair hanging around all the time? Yeah, and I, I forget how they do that in the show. I just watched like the first seven episodes last night for fun, and I can't even remember how they uh, explain that to the rest of the uh, the crowd there. But, uh, you know, a little bit of hand-waving magic, and uh, it's done. Yeah, and in this fanfic, they seem to imply like Jim and Blair don't know how much everyone in the police office knows about what's going on, but they figure some people must be suspicious or must have guessed some things or might have like their own explanations for what's going on or whatever. But um, it occurs to me that we should probably summarize the premise of The Sentinel since we were just talking about how it's kind of niche. But uh, we we basically have. We've got this guy, Jim. He's like an army veteran. He's a police officer. He's like... He seems to be kind of like the brusque masculine type, if that's right. Mm -hmm. And he he has super senses. If we're coming from like a superhero perspective, he's like Daredevil. If Daredevil also had super sight, like just all of them. And um, and apparently in the universe of this show, this is a thing that has happened over and over in history as some sort of genetic quirk so that people can protect their communities against whatever. And then. He has hooked up in the uh, non-sexual and in fanfic sexual sense with this guy, Blair, who is the long-haired Jewish, you know, hippie type, speaking as a Jewish guy who has kept long hair most of his life. I approve of all this talk about how wildly attractive he is. <laughs> um, but he's, like, studying the Sentinel phenomenon and is sort of, like, um, as you said, the person who whose main job it is to keep Jim grounded um in the real world and not you know totally distracted by his senses and occasionally be imperiled or kidnapped if i'm understanding this correctly that is the perfect summarization of everything <laughs> that happened in the show i love it good job that's perfect and this fanfic starts with uh they live together of course of course they do and um jim's kind of like having some trouble with his senses but in a weird way where like he's not sure something's wrong but he hasn't been able to sleep for days and uh the premise of the fanfic starts off with like blair trying to talk him through it and being like okay look clearly your senses are trying to tell you something how about you just lean into that and like stop fighting it and we'll see where it takes you and like i'll be here to you know support you or pull you out of it or whatever if need be yeah yeah, yeah. it's this weird thing um, it's interesting though, like I love how sh the writer does Blair's approach here because that's so quintessential Blair. He's an academic, that's his background. And so when he's presented with a problem, of course, he's going to try to talk it out, reason it out, um, you know, try to experiment a little with it to see what works, what doesn't work. Um, there was also this little part in here where he kind of puts his hand on Jim's arm while they're talking. Mm -hmm. um, and that's deliberate. He's trying to ground Jim in a, at, at a time when Jim's senses are just going nuts and they don't know why, you know. So, uh, so yeah, he's trying to perform his, uh, his guide duties to the best of his abilities. And they, it, they do go under. You know, Jim goes under to see what happens um, and see what his senses might be trying to tell him. Right, right. And it just uh, there's this one, like, interesting part of the beginning where you can really tell like how 
uh, Blair is so excited by Jim's abilities because he like describes um, an artist he knew who was always getting better at his art. I guess that was like he never felt like he could reach the pinnacle. So you can sense in there like Blair has this kind of excited fascination with how far Jim's abilities can go. But he doesn't really want Jim to know that because he doesn't want, I don't know, him to feel like a science experiment or pushed or pressured or something like that. This writer does a good job of kind of doing some subtlety between these two characters. And it's a lot more from Blair's perspective than Jim's. In fact, it's just entirely from Blair's perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not it's not exclusively from Blair's perspective, but it's very, very little from Jim's perspective is what I'm trying to say here. Because I think they're trying to keep that like kind of he's more of a distant character, apparently, in the source. And they're kind of like can, keeping that relationship. So like when he goes under, Jim comes out. He, he he starts saying like okay here's what we need to do and it's like he need he knows what needs to be done it's not clear if he knows why these things need to be done i wasn't entirely clear as a reader it's like is this supposed to be that like his sentinel senses have extended into a sixth sense or is it just that like he's so in it that he can't really explain hey here is what i think is going to happen based on the evidence of my senses and here's why we need to do it um but regardless of the nuance there it, he's kind of like okay oh, yeah. here's what we're going to do now and Blair's like, okay, like let let's follow this thing and do what you think needs to be done. I was I was curious if this came from the show because yeah, this this is the part that confused me mm-hmm. was like yeah, they he's not explaining anything to Blair. He's just going up through these motions. But there's also this description of like how he's talking very woodenly or abstractedly, um, in a way that's not normal for him. So I was wondering if that's like a like a thing in the show that he. I don't know, goes into a trance or something. He doesn't go into trances per se on the show. He does zone out um, many times on the show from, Mm. you know, getting too deep into his senses. But Mm. I wouldn't say that he goes into asset mode or anything while he's, you know, (laughs) using his sensibilities. Um, So that's one interesting thing about this fan fiction is I would consider it AU light in the sense that this author really is trying to explore what if Jim's senses went you know, further than we saw in canon and what if he ah, did develop this okay. interesting sixth sense and what if the sixth sense, uh, you know, kind of drove him into this primal, you know, uh, you know, person who, you know, is kind of different than Jim usually would be on a on a regular basis. So it's. It's kind of a kind of an AU light there. And I think the fanfic sets that up well with that part you talked about, Tori, where like Blair is like, look, you've only scratched, you've only like basically mastered, or not, not mastered, you only you've only gained basic confidence through central abilities. Maybe they go further. And so what becomes clear in this fanfic is they start evacuating the waterfront, basically, but they have no reason to do that. And by the way, this city is Cascade, Washington, it's on the ocean. They've got no justifiable reason to do that so they start going around doing these various things it's like okay let's like sick the cops on these people you know living in these tenements by the waterfront so that they'll like want to to evacuate let's tell the police officers that like there's a drill and all their families need to be like pulled back to this like higher location let's call in a fake terrorist threat yeah Um, jim's like going through burner phones like their yesterday's news like just like a bag of popcorn he's he's pulling out burners and tossing them on the road and running them over with his truck which i'm not sure how that works i guess you throw it in front of the car and you have good aim but anyway 
Though, though, come to think of it, at first, it's not entirely the waterfront. It's kind of like other danger areas. And it starts up, this whole first half of the fanfic is this kind of interesting uh, disaster movie type drama where like the external conflict is it's man against nature, according to my high school English classes. Um, and but it's all very focused on like, how can we minimize the damage of these natural disasters? I feel like in a disaster movie type scenario, I'm used to like someone close to one of the characters being specifically imperiled and like, oh no, that's like a source of very specific high tension drama. And that never happens here. It's all like public servant, public good, like saving who we can, minimizing damage, like throughout the whole thing, which I thought was kind of interesting. It is. It's it's not the sort of narrative you see very often, honestly. It's just all about this natural disaster and what they can do to help and how they're sort of compared to angels a couple of times, <laughs> you know, flitting around helping people before, during, and, you know, in the wake of this crisis. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's funny that you mentioned the, um, the birder phone story, too, because I, I loved that part just because it reiterates the fact that nobody knows that Jim is a sentinel. Nobody knows mm -hmm. what he can do. So it's not like he can call up the National Guard and be like, yo, you know, like <laughs> something's going to happen. He can't do that. So, of course, he has to create fake bomb threats to get the city on high alert. Right. That's how you would have to do that if nobody's going to believe what you have to say because nobody knows that you're a sentinel or that sentinels even exist. So that was kind of a it's funny. It's like humorous. But you can also see like why that would be necessary, I guess, you know? Yeah. Well, it's something this fit calls back attention to a lot is that Jim's past is in special ops, I think. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. Special forces or whatever. He, he he does some stuff. Uh, he knows how to like be stealthy and tactical. Um, he and he uses how, that. He also knows how the authorities respond to certain things. Mm -hmm. And he's also, yeah, currently a police officer. Yeah. Right. Like, if you asked me, like, off the top of my head, it's like, okay, how can we get the city to, like, evacuate this area? I'd be like, I, I don't know. What? Like, at I don't know. Call someone and ask them. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but Jim knows how to get things done in that sense, too. And so the first, you know, actual disaster that hits is an earthquake. And it's supposed to be a real big earthquake. Uh, I guess it's not the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake that is going to destroy Portland, the city where... Um, most of us live any moment now in geologic time it's not supposed to be that one but it's like it's a bad earthquake that hits western washington mm -hmm. it causes a tidal wave which is what causes most of the destruction well i mean that that's the source of tension right it's like the earthquake hits and now you know they've done what they can to mitigate the effects of the earthquake but then uh, there's been a big earthquake and everybody knows that there's the risk of tsunami and of course, a tidal wave. And of course, Jim knows. And yes, there is an enormous tidal wave that is coming. I can sense it. I can't really tell how big it is because I've never had to sense one of these before. But like, it's going to be bad. But at that point, like the authorities are on board, right? That's where they like hook up with the police department. And like things can be done, especially since Simon kind of makes the call, makes certain calls to like executive decision, start acting on this before anything comes from higher powers. I'd also just like to point out a small detail, which is when the earthquake first hits and Jim realizes the tidal wave is going to hit, he and Blair 
both go into this hibernation state together for oh, like 36 yeah, yeah, that's a good hours. Part. Um, Wait, well, it wasn't for 36 hours. 36 hours after he crawled under a table to wait and see if death would be the next journey. I believe that partner. is. Blair slowly reconnected to a world that he. Oh, no, wait. That's later on. You're right. Yeah. So it was like, I don't know, several hours. Okay. They, there's enough time for people to take turns watching over them. Well, which is yeah. interesting because like Blair's also at this hibernation state. He's gone under with him, which I was like, how does he do that? Well, but that's okay. where we start getting the really interesting Sentinel Guide content, right? Because Jim kind of has the sense that he needs to do this. And the reason is because when the earthquake hits, or or is this later on with the tidal wave? It's the tidal it's, wave, yeah. It's the tidal wave. It's later on with the tidal wave. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, the earthquake itself, they did what they can. But I, I don't know. We're talking about this moment already. Why don't we jump forward and we can jump back and around? It's all Sorry, like disaster I, movie I forgot, stuff. I thought it was just like the earthquake and then they're like, and now the tidal wave's coming. I, I There's a couple hours like, in between. Oh, that. okay. Um, but when eh. the tidal wave does hit, yeah, Jim needs to go into hibernation because he would not be able to cope with what his senses are going to be telling him of the death and destruction and probably just sheer volume of noise, frankly. And, you know, like wailing and, you know, horror that's going to happen in a natural disaster, even one that they've prepared for. Like he can't let his senses be, he can't let himself be conscious during that happening. And that's also the time when, yeah, he crawls under a desk toy, like you said, and Blair mm -hmm. goes under with him because he's gonna need snuggles for Sentinel guide reasons. Convenient, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting to me how Blair's abilities are treated in different fan fiction contexts because there are some interpretations that will tell you that Blair also has some sort of supernatural shamanic type uh, powers that are mm -hmm. not as quite, you know, not quite frankly as impressive as Jim's are, but <laughs> in his own right, you know, he has them. And then in other fan fictions, the interpretation is just that because of his emotional connection to Jim and that relationship that they have together, um, that he's just the rock and the support that Jim needs when he's going under or using his senses or whatever. So I feel like, I don't know, you'll have to tell me what your opinion is on this particular story, because I felt like it was a mixture of both, almost. I caught elements of both. I agree. Well, I mean, I distinctly remember elements of the first one. This, this fanfic author is not going down hard on, like, his supernatural powers are why this is a thing. I think you're yeah. right. The, the author's also like, and their emotional relationship is why this is a thing. But like, there's even a time when Jim has gone like, you know, full sentinel mode, like in kind of the depths of his senses, including maybe that sixth one, where he mentions, there's a conversation that I can't track down at this moment, but where he mentions to Blair, like, oh, like basically, yeah, there's something special about you too. It's not, you're not like... Mm -hmm. uh, basically like the sentinel powers telling blair you also are in some sense supernatural um so yeah that's definitely an element and and like this is kind of what i was trying to point to when i talked about how they both kind of like go into hibernation together because i was like i didn't think blair had powers except like a little bit before that yeah jim hints that he's sort of like think about it you've always been connected to stuff right and I wasn't sure how much of this was from the fanfic or from the series, but like, uh, it's interesting because the author's language is abstract. So there's like this line when they first like are huddling together or no, it's yeah. When they realize the title, it's going to come and they're huddling together. And it says, 
about Blair, like a lost traveler following a will-o'-wisp in the swamp. He chased after the bright flicker that was his partner, never hearing or feeling the building sway violently and the unimaginable thunder of an ocean's worth of cascading water. So it's like, I don't know, it feels like it's maybe it's just abstract authors speak for emotional connection, or maybe it's supposed to be very literal, like tele, uh, telepathic connection. I have no idea. Uh, I'm so glad that you brought up that line because that's one of my favorite paragraphs from the whole fic. I mean, the whole fic is beautifully written, in my opinion, but I especially loved those couple of lines. But, um, you know, now that I'm thinking about the different episodes from the actual canon, I do recall that there are some <laughs> supernatural elements that do seem to apply to Blair at certain parts of the series later on as you get further and further into different um, seasons. So I feel like what they did with canon with Blair's character was vague enough that you could interpret it a lot of different ways. And so it, in this sense, I do feel I agree with you, uh, Amato, that that the author was just hinting at certain things, but didn't want to like come down hard one way or the other, I guess, you know, and just kind of left it vague the same way that the show did. So mm. I think that works really well. Like, I think there's just like the main thing, obviously, is their their connection. And I guess it doesn't have to manifest in a specific way. And actually, what I found to be, I don't know if this starts halfway through or a third of the way through, but I still feel like it's most of the fanfic is them rescuing people in the aftermath of the tidal wave. Yeah. Well, if we're talking about the the Jim Blair progression in the story, which is the main thing. I mean, there's a lot of other things happening with secondary characters, but the, clearly the main thing is the, the Jim Blair. But yeah, um, once the tidal wave hits, they go into like search and rescue. And obviously, um, it's like out, out of all the circumstances where I can imagine having super senses being incredibly useful, search and rescue is like way high up there. It's like that's actually a really clever like way to do this. And I, I I imagine the Sentinel TV show did not do anything like this on this scale because no way would have the budget, right? But like um But yeah, the description of how they're going around finding people, like marking places, all like, you know, swooping in to save individual, like, you know, people in distress or whatever. It's like it's kind of a series of vignettes, but I thought it was really effective in conveying its main points, which is like, this is kind of like what the Sentinel powers are best at. This is Jim and Blair working in unison without really talking about it. And also, this is them as good people wearing themselves down to the bone because they specifically are so incredibly useful at this um, until they can, like literally can no longer do it anymore. And like they Blair and or Simon have to force them to stop. Yeah, I loved the the helicopter scenes you know mm. because the first thing they do after the tidal wave kind of like uh calms down is they get a chopper for jim and blair and they send them up but it's at night at this point it's dark all right so that the chopper pilot is uh flying by instrument navigation at this point because nobody can see anything but jim can, but jim can. right because of his mm -hmm. senses and so like who best to go up there because he's you know he's helping with search and rescue he's telling the emergency personnel where to go he's guiding vehicles through the streets and the rubble and all of the chaos and everything and he is literally the only person in the entire city 
that could do it, you know? And it was just kind of really cool, you know, to see some, like see him do something that nobody else could do that was extremely helpful in the vital, um, you know, 12 hours after the wave first hit. So I loved that chopper scene. Yeah. I, I remember specifically liking the writing in that chopper scene too, where like, it's describing like for the next two hours, Jim was the voice or was with the eyes of the department. It's like some phrase like that. And it's kind of just an overview also of like the sorts of things that he's seeing in this aftermath um, of the tidal wave hitting the city. I thought it was a really like a really beautiful kind of pull out the perspective sort of scene that that progresses the story into the next phase. You know, <laughs> That kind of speaks to what I think is really excellent pacing in this story. Like, it kind of knows, it flows in waves, not a tidal wave, like <laughs> little, like an ebb and flow, like a gentle wave. Like, you get some of that more intensity, and then you get some of that pullback. For instance, yes, you're a little bit abstracted here. You're getting Jim's idea of using his senses, but then you're honing in not too long from now. There, there's like a little bit of an overview, right? Where you're like, and they save this part. Or there were reports all over the city of people being saved and Simon hears about them. And it's sort of just this high level overview of like, these people must have been saved by Jim and Blair. And then you flow right back into a specific scene, which is them saving this uh, baby. So like, they're like exhausted, covered in mud <laughs> and and they all they want to do is go home and like motto you're right this is all from Blair's perspective it's third person omniscient but like you just right. don't see uh, it in like Jim's head occasionally you see him, occasionally Simon, see, like, Simon and Blair right. yeah. yeah occasionally Simon when he shows up but it's mostly Blair you just don't see in Jim's head so like Blair's like I just want to get a bath now and they've already acknowledged <laughs> their whole uh, condo or apartment or whatever has been destroyed so they're like I just want to go to this hotel and get a bath and then. Of course, Jim hears a baby crying. Yeah, and it's a miracle baby who like has been washed away in its like I don't know car seat or something like that. Car seat, yeah. Um, and like is just perched on top of like you know a pile of debris, and even there, like that baby should not be alive. But you know the <laughs> he's able to hear that it is, and it, it it starts this whole little subplot where they like retrieve the baby, they bring it back to the police station, they bonded with the baby, so they don't want to just like turn it right over to the authorities because they're like it needs more individual care. And then also like Jim's senses are able to identify like its mom who is looking for it, um, you know, mm -hmm. just like pleading outside the police station out of some sort of like sixth sense or desperation. Yeah, I but like, it's a but whole like thing. this is also this moment where like like there's so much tenderness towards the child mm -hmm. and. Blair has to climb because that's a throwback to at least the pilot. Because I read that line where he asked him to climb the thing. And I was like, wait, did I read this already? Oh, no, that was just like in the pilot. And they do the callback in the fanfic where he's like, I'm always having to climb. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then he's he has to carry the baby and be tender. The baby Well, Jim drives it. But Jim's actually the one who's like more. I don't know. I think Blair says, like, surprisingly for a bachelor, like, very well-versed with children. I don't know. Blair's a little more awkward with the child, but he still, like, feels affection. So, like, there's this whole, I don't know, bonding between them over the infant. It's, I don't know, it's very sweet. Yeah, it was this very sweet moment that was kind of just, like, stuck in the middle of all of this chaos and this mayhem and this 
you know, I mean, natural disaster, that's huge, you know, and it's tragic and everything. But then you do have these like tender moments in here where people are being saved, where they find the baby, you know, where you have a little bit more time to um, zero back in to the main characters and kind of see their uh, relationship progress and their journey, um, you know, through this whole thing as individual people. So, yeah, no, I agree with all of that. It was just very cool to see the different perspectives and how it hones out and then zooms back in and everything. Um, one of the parts that I liked, and this is so random, but there's that part where I, they've been doing search and rescue for like forever and they're like exhausted. So Simon does make them both go into his office and take a nap at some mm. point kind of forces them to stay at the station to get some sleep before they go back out again. Um, and it's, it's just cute to me because at first Simon is the one kind of guarding the door to his office to make sure that nobody goes in there to disturb them because they're napping. But then at certain parts of the story, you see other members of the major crimes unit standing guard at the door to make sure that nobody disturbs them and that they get their rest. And I liked this because all over Sentinel fan fiction, you get this really sweet found family type of relationship that exists within major crimes and the characters that are there. And so uh, it was just really nice to see that theme show up in such a random small way in this uh this you know natural disaster type fic because uh because yeah that's pretty typical i think of sentinel fan fiction they take care of each other they watch out for each other especially simon so it was just really sweet to see that i think in the story i loved it i agree and like um simon's the one who kind of notices people are standing guard and then he kind of does so himself but he he's also such an interesting character in this because like we mentioned we don't really see in Jim's head. We mostly see in Blair's, but we do see in Simon's. And usually it's kind of, um, well, not always. It's uh, But his emotional beats have to do with either his son, Daryl, mm -hmm. or with these feelings he has when he watches Jim and Blair. So, like, I do have a quote here. It's like, uh, eyes impossibly round, Daryl looked back into the office, and without thinking, Simon did the same. Uh, this is when they're napping. Just barely able to, or maybe when they're, it doesn't matter. Yeah, no, that's when they're napping. Just barely able to see through the shadows and debris to where Ellison and Sandberg lay wound around each other. He blinked at an unexpected surge of emotion. Not sure if it was envy, tenderness, or petulance. They were getting a brief respite from the chaos around them. And that's kind of his whole thing. Like, you get this feeling that he wants something from their relationship and like you're not sure if he wants to be a part of it or he's jealous of it or i don't know i think it's it's kind of interesting and sweet in a weird way i guess it is sweet and it's also so cool to see that in this fan fiction because that's very typical of sentinel fan fiction simon is used that way um so many times in Sentinel fan fiction where he's sort of the observer to the relationship of Jim and Blair and he's this outside perspective. He's used that way a lot and I've seen it done in so many different ways and hmm. it's beautiful every single time because like at his heart, Simon as a character is a very thoughtful individual. So he really is the perfect kind of observer um, to, to narrate these things for us and it's done many, many times throughout the Sentinel fandom. So it's it's really cool. Uh, I'm flashing back. Remember this Deadly Innocence, like mm -hmm. the Star Trek one, um, by... Was it Koi? What was that? Was, you're thinking about Koi? No, wait. 
I mean, yeah, yeah I, I'm thinking of McCoy being like, like Spock, Jim, you're on forced leave. Go to this vacation planet. Talk about your feelings. Like you are doing this now. And I've got to imagine Simon is used like that in a lot of Sentinel fanfics as like someone is like, you two need to talk about your feelings and I'm going to make you. Yes, yes. In fact, there are many Sentinel fan fictions out there where the premise is that Jim and Blair are being stubborn and they won't admit mm -hmm. that they have feelings for each yeah, other. Yeah. And Simon absolutely is the one to be like, all right, that's it. That's enough. You know, I can't work this between you immediately. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you do get that impression in this fic, except that like this is just a different character role that I really, I don't know if I've really seen it before. It's like, you can't tell if it's going to end up in a threesome or not, honestly. Well, that's what I was thinking. I was like, you know Jim and Blair are going to get together. Or at least that's what I assumed. But, like, Simon has this weird, like, attraction to them. Like, I, I don't... It doesn't have to be attraction. It could be anything. It's so nebulous. Connection. Like, he loves them both. Right. He cares clearly. a lot about them. But the way he describes his feelings is so abstracted, it's just hard to tell what's going to happen. Which I guess is also true of the Jim Blair relationship in a way. They have a very uh, masculine way of communicating. Well, <laughs> sorry, speaking, men. While we're on Simon, before I move on to something else, I do want to say I also appreciate the Simon Daryl stuff. I didn't get a strong mm. feeling of Daryl as a character, but the general emotional beats of like um, Simon feeling proud of like, he, like he's got a kid, but now his kid is like older and capable and like, you know, um, and trying also to help and like also a good person like him feeling proud of that and the moment where he's like well one or both of us might die in a moment when like the tsunami hits and like just kind of them sharing that unspoken between each other also i mean you know as a parent that's the sort of thing that i hone in on in a story these days but i thought it was a nice it, it was a nice little subplot that in no way related to jim and blair which you know which is unusual in this story yeah, but still nice that she took the time yeah. to to go there, right? To go there. Because you're right. There are, Sometimes Daryl makes an appearance in these stories, and sometimes he doesn't. We know who he is, um, but it, it, you're right. It's very nice that he made, makes the appearance in this one and that you kind of get a good sense of, um, you know, the tenderness and the, the, the pride that Simon feels mm -hmm. when he looks at his son and sees him stepping up in such a big way um, when it's needed the most. But about that Jim Blair hooking up, okay? Because I, there's a thing about this fanfic that jumped out at me, where, look, once all the search and rescue dies down, and they're both bone-weary, and they're both able to rest, they're sent over to this hotel. And the hotel has been a subplot throughout this whole thing, where, like, the, day, the night manager must be a reoccurring character in the show, right? Or something. But... No, no recollection. I forget her name, but like th this hotel has been a thing. Lily? Is is that Lily? Lily sounds right. She's like offered rooms to, you know, these like uh, public servants who have lost their homes. Like she's shared the food or the people were sheltering in the hotel. Also, she's shared the food that they've okay. lost the power for any anyway. So like it needed to go out. But like it's been a, a thing to help people who need food as well. Just to clarify, if I've learned anything from watching only the pilot of the Sentinel, Blair has a lot of women friends. <laughs> So oh. <laughs> that's uh, my guess there. Okay, yeah. but here's the thing. The fanfic has spent a lot of time establishing that there is a hotel with a friendly person. There is hot water, or at least warm water, because they weren't, like, she got early warning about, like, the stuff that was going to go down. And it's like, they're going to get Jim and Blair 
into this hotel room by themselves so they can rest with a tub of warm water. And I was like, okay, this this author's checking off all their boxes so that these two can clean themselves off and not be covered, literally covered in sweat and grime before they have sex. And indeed, in the tub is where, like, Jim makes his kind of, like, overture, his, like, most direct kind of, like, sexual romantic overture to Blair. And, like, they basically snuggle in the tub. And, like, this is kind of, like, their, like, the culmination, there's been a few hints about this earlier where Jim's like, are we just, are we just roommates or whatever? But, like, they didn't have time to deal with it. Now they have time to deal with it. And I was like, well, now is where the sex scene happens. And there's no sex scene. And, like, I didn't, I don't need that as an individual. I don't actually care too much. But it felt like there was a sex scene here that then just got cut out. It felt like it had been building to it so, like, so specifically that it felt weird when it wasn't there to me. Was that just me? No. No, no. I, I actually, I felt similarly, but, like, not that it was weird per se. It's just, I did, I did reread the mm-hmm. scene where they transfer between the tub and the bed to see if I'd missed something because what Blair says is something like post-coital cuddling and I was like, where I know, was when, the When did the coitus? coital happen? I yeah. I, so I, I, I think it was just supposed to be, I think it's supposed to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Um, I think that line is because, yes, there's yeah, no intercourse here. But it, it did make it a little bit more complicated to kind of read into it. That or this could be one of those sorts of things where you know fanfic authors included a separate sex scene for people who would pay for it or something or who, who wrote in so they could mail the physical copy right of it. <laughs> i mean it's entirely possible i i honestly don't know but it didn't bother me that much that there wasn't one i didn't need one it was implied enough for me yeah like, it, and it's less of a narrative thing for me i don't think the narrative needed it it's just like i as a reader of fan fiction like my every expectation was that they were doing that because it felt like they put so much work into setting it up that's all or or setting up an opportunity for it to be there i should say well you know as someone who reads a lot of slash fan fiction i would have personally preferred that a scene like that was in there somewhere however here in this context in that scene here's where my brain is going okay okay i turn i turn 40 in two weeks right (laughs) Jim has got to be in his mid to late 40s at this point. You've just like gone days and days and days almost without any rest and rescue and saving people and your emotions are shot, your brain is shot, your body is so shot. Like there's no way I would be able to perform in circumstances like that. I'm just saying from a practical point of view, I can kind of see why they were just like, you know what, let's just go to sleep and there's plenty of time for this some other time. Absolutely. That is true. So Chaos Blue has a really good point about the fact that, like, very practically speaking, I completely understand. They're exhausted. But narratively speaking, we did expect the sex scene, like you said, Amato. As so, a reader of fan fiction. Right, as a reader of fan fiction. <laughs> However, I'm a little bit torn because I'm going, well, do I want a practical narrative or do I want one that fits the formula? And I actually think this narrative does a little bit of both because what you do get is kind of a romantic mm-hmm. connection between the two. And it, it's very sweet. Um, there's just this moment they have to wash down with cold water and then they're in the tub together in the warm water, a little bit more clean. 
but there's this hesitancy right before that where it's like he's like Blair's like Jim go first and then I don't know Jim's like you can get in with me or something like that and that's mm-hmm. one of those very fan fictiony like hesitancy like but really and there's this funny line too about like um very like there's something about like male attraction I I want to find <laughs> that line because it's actually quite I do good. remember some line about that and like about Jim or something. Yeah, I know what line you're talking about and I can't quote it off the top of my head, but it struck me as a very retro thing to say. <laughs> you're not going to find lines like that in more modern right. fiction. But in the retro sense, that was very much apropos, I think. And uh, it was kind of funny. It was interesting because like, this is a well-written piece, but it definitely has the hallmarks of its time. Um, it does like how the men have to and you know this is actually not that unrealistic it's how the men have to kind of come at this sideways because of their masculinity and there's like embarrassment and hesitancy because this is their first queer relationship one assumes i I think that we're supposed to read that i found this the place you don't have to sit all scrunched up like that jim said softly i don't mind if you lean back against me and get comfortable Opening his eyes, Blair studied him, hearing more in the words than their obvious meaning, but not sure what it was. Jim, long since the master of Inscrutable, was trying hard not to give any other hints, but after the past two days, he was as easy for Blair to read as he was to Jim. What he saw was a shy hope and a male appreciation that was new to them both, and a little Mm. surprising, though it probably shouldn't have been. A male appreciation? (laughs) That that was a very Uh. unusual phrase, yeah. And it's interesting where it works like, is this... Is his type of appreciating the way a male might appreciate things, or is this an appreciation of maleness? And I mean, it works both ways, I guess. It does. It does. But I, <laughs> I love Tori's point about you know taken in context for the time and the era, right? That this was written and the time and the era that the Sentinel came out. You absolutely had to kind of come at this sideways with the characters because back in the '90s, I mean. Yeah, some people were out, but it still wasn't, it it wasn't safe, right? Mm-hmm, it right. wasn't, especially in male-dominated professions like the police force. So, you know, that's a huge theme that comes up in classic Sentinel fan fiction, is this coming at this queer relationship completely sideways, because they're afraid of people finding out and they're afraid of people judging them or, um, you know, they're afraid of violence happening because of, you know, things like that. And so it is really interesting how um, homophobia and studies on homosexuality are a huge theme in lots of different Sentinel fan fictions. Um, and then to, to look at that in, a, I don't know, the context of its time is very interesting compared to what you see in fan fiction today. I think that's an, an incredible point because we've had a lot of these, especially fanfics with gay men, but also, you know, lesbian relationships as well from this similar era where it's like, yeah, there's so much back and forth about the hesitancy about whether, you know, like they, they almost don't even say whether it'll be accepted, but you know that they had yet to show gay people kissing on network television at all. Our culture has changed so much. So it's, you kind of have to walk your brain back to that space where like, it's almost like the fan fiction is in um, embedding the same hesitancy they had in reaction to this television. It's it's this step-by-step process. Um, 
And it is very interesting. It It's its own tone in a way to me. Remember that Sonic the Hedgehog fan fiction, Bloodlines, where mm-hmm. at the very end, the author put in a little warning about like this last part, like might offend people, like, you know, skip over it if you want or whatever, like delete it from your text file if you need to. And we were like, oh, great. This is going to be some terrible shit. And it was like two girls kissing. Yep. And um, as like the culmination of a not super well executed emotional arc. But that's beside the point. The point was that like the author was really genuinely worried about people's response to this in a way that like I'm not used to from fan fiction because I'm used to the fan fiction attitude of like I'm writing what I want and if you don't like it screw you don't read it whereas like whoever this author was was like is this okay like is okay to ship these two female characters will people get actually genuinely upset with me over it and like I kind of felt sorry for them from that sense I think there's a couple different modes when we look at fan fiction from the 90s, especially. There's the mode of like queer people writing queer stuff and just being like, fuck it. This isn't mm-hmm. for network television. This is for me. But then there's also those people who have internalized the network television mm-hmm. tropes. So, yeah, there's that for sure. And I did, too. You know, growing up, you just you just never. I'm still shocked and delighted whenever I see queer stuff on TV, even though it's so much more common now. I totally agree with your your last point, Tori, because you and I both remember, right, that era where you just didn't see queer content on network TV at all. You know, I remember when Will and Grace came out and that was like the first, ah, right. you know, <laughs> um, and then we didn't see anything like that for such a long time until recently. So, uh, so yeah, it's just, it's all very interesting to just see everything in the, yeah. in, in the era that it comes from and to remember like, oh yeah, there was that time when this wasn't a commonplace thing and we had to dance around it, even in fan fiction sometimes. If you were lucky, you saw that one episode of Xena where she, <laughs> she and Gabrielle kiss. That stuck in my brain forever because you just did not see. I'm not even sure how they snuck that past the censors, to be completely honest. But I remember like catching that every so often on TV. I remembered which episode it was. And when they started having those digital TV guides, you know, with your cable box, be like, is that episode of Zeta where they kiss? I have to watch it again. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things I think, turning it right back to the Sentinel, one of the things that I think is so interesting about the Sentinel is. It was one of those shows where you didn't have to squint too hard to see some sort of connection here between Jim and Blair, especially when you remember that in canon, their lives are so enmeshed with each other already, you know, because you have them living together literally in the same apartment. They're like domestic partners already in the sense that on any given episode, you'll find, you know, Blair cooking Jim breakfast in the kitchen on a Tuesday, you know? I mean, there's all these kind of little hints and things. And so you didn't have to squint very hard. If you really wanted to see something, you could see it. It wasn't, you know, blatant or anything. And obviously, you know, in canon, they both have heterosexual relationships with women, um, sadly. But... um you know, it was definitely one of those shows where uh, there was enough content there um, mm. that you could kind of draw conclusions if you wanted to. I always wonder if, like, for the longest time, I just thought, this is just what fan fiction authors do. Like, we draw <laughs> queer content out of things because we just didn't have it at yeah. all. But then, you know, the way you're talking about it, Chaos Blue, it's like, as if 
the writers had intentionality there as well. And I, I do wonder if that's the case, if maybe they even understood the, the fan community that was surrounding them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, not necessarily with the, the Sentinel, but I have read several interviews um, in the past 10 years from different showrunners who did shows back in the 90s, and they were finally able to talk about it all these years later and say, yes, that was intentional. We did that. That was all we could get away with in yeah. that time. And uh, and yeah, it was intentional. And a lot of you picked it up and that's great, you know? And so, yeah, it, it, that, that, that was a thing. That was a thing that happened with these shows for sure. Well, geez, that as a topic, that idea of like queer coding and the intentionality of it and like does the intentionality affect the like legitimateness of, you know, shipping these characters. That's like a whole episode of probably your show right there, Chaos Blue. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think but let's let's head back to the fanfic and maybe see what else we want to talk about there. In terms of uh, speaking of people's reactions to homosexual relationships we do have the emotional resolution of simon like walking in on them not in like a creepy way or anything but like he's he you know also needs to go to the hotel and crash and such and he checks in on them and they're in bed together and his reaction as this sort of semi-paternal figure to the two of them is that basically he's able to well I, I guess he's he's their boss so in that sense it's kind of like a hierarchical relationship right he gives his blessing essentially he's like Look, I'm really glad for you two that you like found each other and that you didn't let, you know, the the whatever rules about co-fraternation, fraternization, like get in the way of it. Does Blair work at the police station? I don't know. Okay, whatever. Um, but th that's kind of like one of the last um things that happen in the fanfic, other than sort of a discussion of how deep under Jim had to go into his sentinel powers to do this. And how they're not going to do that again lightly in the future. But if they do, Blair will be there as the emotional and or metaphysical anchor. Yeah. Though, um, just to jump back for a second, that last little bit. We weren't clear about the whole why they didn't have sex thing. And I think it's really interesting because the line is that they say they're going to skip to the good part, which is post-coital cuddling. <laughs> so that's why I was confused, right? We talked about that, the coital thing. But like, I think they're just saying we're going to skip to cuddling. So that's what Simon walks into is them cuddling. Right. And I actually think it's really sweet because he has such a positive reaction to it. And this is also after he checks in on his son and, you know, he has this thought process of like, all he wants to do is, is lie down in bed with his son and hold him after this traumatic experience, which is really sweet but he's too grimy and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's kind of it. Like, how does it really wrap up at the end there? Well, there's a last uh, kind of emotional check-in between Jim and, um, Jim and what's his name? Blair, like mm -hmm. by themselves. Right. About like, you know, the, the physical damage can re be, be rebuilt and mm. uh, they're going to get a new place together. Yeah, I think it ends on this hopeful this hopeful note, right? Because you have just that hint of the start of an actual romantic relationship between Jim and Blair. And so the end of this fan fiction is really more of a beginning than it is an end because it's that hopeful promise of a romantic future with this person 
Um, you know, I think they've probably both had feelings for each other for, for a while, right, at this point. And so um, to just kind of have that hopeful promise of a future with somebody, I think that was really sweet, a really nice way to end it. Yeah. And I think Chaos Blue, the author has put in that work to show like, yeah, they have this emotional connection. It is not weird and ill-advised that they're going to start apartment hunting, you know, the very instant they got together. Like they're close enough that they can start apartment hunting and like work it out from there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually was pleasantly surprised by the the ending because I, after all of the kind of death and destruction that happened in this, despite Blair and Jim being heroes and, and them getting together. I, I wasn't sure if it was going to end on a hopeful note, and it does. And it, I don't know, it feels very complete, and it feels very sweet and genuine. Like, they're not just getting together, but they're rebuilding. And that's a very literal thing in the wake of this natural disaster. So, a very unique narrative, you know, I... I I Very haven't read one story. quite like it. No. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, where like there's there's genuine external threat, and there's an emotional through line, and they're connected. But like I said, at no point, at no point is drama milked out of the natural disaster beyond the fact that it's a huge freaking natural disaster, and their job is to try to save people's lives. And yeah, I, I thought it was pretty cool. It's very much like a. a- uh, there's a type of television show where like it's all about it's like an episodic show where it's all about like search and rescue mm-hmm. type stuff like this just reads like that I guess you don't watch that episode that show because you're concerned for the people who are doing the search and rescue you're concerned about the situation resolving as well as it can mm-hmm. yeah yeah well we you know skimmed over a lot of that story we are here at the end of the story but is there anything that we didn't talk about throughout these 20,000 words that either of you two want to check back in about? I have a couple of, like, things for praise and criticism when we get to that part. Well, we, but... we can get to that right now if we're ready. <laughs> this is more the, like, general open, like, did I steamroll over you two trying to, like, bring this to a close sort of invitation. <laughs> I honestly think we kind of encompass that plot pretty well um the only other there's a like one little tiny thing which is um simon uh does have a little flirtation with i, I think it's lily mm-hmm. uh blair's friend uh who has opened up the hotel to them there's a little flirtation with her at the end so that i think supposed to be our key that like maybe simon's gonna move on and have a relationship because again it wasn't quite clear whether it was going to be a threesome with him and Jim and Blair or not. But good catch. I didn't catch that. No, that good for yeah. Simon. Oh yeah, yeah. No, she like hands him the key and the briefly brushes his hand. It's just a little thing. And the, and then he has a mental thought where it's like, oh, like that that little flirtation like felt good even though there's this is in no way the time <laughs> in any sense. Right. I think it's supposed to be the audience's cue that like something's going to happen for Simon because clearly this yeah. author was concerned with Simon. This author clearly likes Simon, yeah. Right. Secondary but, like, viewpoint character. Right. But it is weird because there's not like, I don't know, his arc seems a little bit like abstracted, I guess. It's like all observational. Like KS Blue mentioned, I guess that's his role a lot. Mm-hmm. But like, I guess maybe this yeah. author was taking a cue from from that's his role is to observe their relationship, but they also wanted to give him something as well. 
there's little bits and pieces like a, a reporter accosts him at one point and like asks for his comment on like the news and he's like I, I don't care what what news i've been so busy and it's that like the mayor is going to award him something for his like quick action in like evacuation and he he has his little speech about like the people who were out there like physically doing all they could to save people's lives deserves deserve medals and it's like a lot of things in the Simon plot here, I feel like that's it's understated. But part of this is like him not feeling like he deserves any credit because he's not even the one who like made this call. He like talked to a guy who was like, yes, an enormous earthquake is coming or like, yes, an enormous tsunami is coming and responded appropriately. He didn't have to go out on a limb there. Like, but he can't give credit to Jim because Blair especially is insistent that this whole Sentinel thing be kept under wraps and such. And yeah, it like like I'm saying, it doesn't go... It doesn't really delve into that, but clearly there's, like, an element of, like, being uncomfortable with receiving any praise for that element of things. Yeah, well, that goes back to the the title of the mm -hmm. fan fiction, right? Oh, um, right, it does. Um, right? Mm -hmm. Because it really is, the whole story is just about doing the right thing and stepping up to the plate when it matters. Not because you want the paparazzi shot, not because you mm -hmm. want your name in the papers or people to say you're a hero or whatever. Right. But you're just you're just doing it because you can and because it's the right thing to do. And I like that. Obviously, there's the Jim and Blair part where it's like, oh, they swoop in like angels and people don't know, you know, who they are. And then they're off again because they need to save the next person. But like that also applies to Daryl. It also applies to Lily. Like the fanfic mm -hmm. is full of people who are just doing what they can yeah. to help out their community. In this tough time. It's so positive, right? Because like yeah. Daryl's a teenager and then he's with this other group of teenagers. There's one just like random boy on a skateboard who like I don't know, delivers water. Simon to someone. tries to pay him to do it and he's like, Yeah, so good with me. I'm doing it, you know, just to do it. It's like it's not the most prominent thing in the story, but it is a story of a community coming together mm -hmm. to support each other. And I think that, yeah, there's a lot of positivity here, and I appreciate that. Very warm and fuzzy. It is. I guess this is where, you know, we put on our freshman English and are like, it's like the city's also a character. Like the community's also a character in the story. Mm -hmm. In this essay, I will... <laughs> say three things and no more because that's what my teacher's requiring of me <laughs> oh man it also does have though that like very like 90s totality of like we take something like tragedy is always accompanied by something really positive right I feel like right. fiction has swung <laughs> I mean not fiction in general uh, the world well the world no, like television has kind of swung in the opposite direction now where it's like all dark all the time. Let's be edgy. Yes. But like there was always something positive even in the darkness back in that era of media. So mm -hmm. anyway, moving on. <laughs> all right. So I guess we can wrap it up then. Uh, speaking of there being positive things in all darkness, we are going to start by saying things that we might want to criticize or think could have been done better in this fan fiction before we end on a good note and say our favorite things about it. So what are any complaints, even very minor ones, that you might have about this story? Two. The <laughs> first one, and don't kill me, mm -hmm. but like the baby scene, like yeah. I get why that was a sweet scene and I did enjoy that scene, but there were parts of that scene, like I'll be honest, that were really weird to me a oh, little bit. Yeah. And I just found myself wondering... 
why is this baby scene necessary? Like, there's, there's that one part. I probably shouldn't mention this, but there's that one part where they put the baby, they wrap him up, like, inside of Blair's shirt so that the baby can get skin-on-skin contact because it's so cold in Very Cascade, important. Washington. Yes. And it's wet and everything. And this baby starts, like, nursing in there, you oh, know? And there's you. that scene where Blair's like, oh, that feels weird. And I thought, why is that necessary to put in there? That's so weird. <laughs> well, from a real-world perspective, which we're using so that it's okay that there's no sex scene, like, that would be a very natural thing for that baby to do, assuming it was, like, conscious. Latin. Would a yeah. baby do that? Really? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. This yeah. is a starving baby. They're trying to latch I've the nearest nipple. I've never been around a baby, so I don't and know. Oh, yeah. They say she can't be older than three months, so... Oh, no, the baby will go for a nipple. It doesn't have a sense of, like, you know, whether there's any milk in there for any reason or not. Like, that's... Uh, okay. They're so that's being very like, practical. Weird. Yeah. But, like, no, it is it is interesting because I think what you're identifying is there's, like, a shift in tone. As soon yeah. as they get to the baby scene, it's very, like, very specific to what babies need and what babies do. <laughs> um, and I, I, I'm assuming this author probably had a young child or was around a young child because it's, like, the right which you know thing. They knew what they were talking about, but it does feel like it's it's. Yeah, it's a big shift from what they were talking about before. I will definitely give you that. Yeah, and yeah. I I guess I could chime in where, like, in that story, in this story where, like, it is very grounded in a lot of ways, they do have that line where it's like, there's no way that baby should be alive. And I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. you're right. But I guess <laughs> I, I guess true. we're going with this. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, that's the weirdness of that scene is they have to climb up a pile of debris. It's like not even like the baby's like in a tree, even though that would probably be just as bizarre, but it's like they somehow, she's in her car seat perched on a pile of debris and they later explain it. They find the mother later. I don't know if we said that, but whatever. The mother says, I put her in the car seat and I ran back in for more diapers. I was like, first of all, you dumbass, <laughs> Get, uh, forget the fucking diapers. Secondly, she says, by the time I went back out to the car, tidal wave had hit. I was in the house and I managed to survive and the car had just been swept away. So this baby was swept away inside a car, inside a car seat and ended up on a pile of debris. Well, I, I assumed the car seat was next to the car and had not yet been latched in. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Maybe you're right. I, that but, might but, be but, a little but bit it's better. Like, yeah. Somehow it was in the car and now it's out of the car. It's just... It's a lot. <laughs> but I agree. Suddenly, it's a very weird shift for them to suddenly ask you to spend disbelief there and be invested in a baby subplot. And it just does, it really does come out of nowhere. But you had a, you had a second one, <laughs> Chaos Blue, too, right? <laughs> it does. It does. And this is the most important one, okay? It's not even a proper criticism. It's more like, mm -hmm. like a fluffy wish list or something. Oh, but I've had those for sure. Yeah, listen, there's no kiss in this story. Yeah. between Jim mm. and Blair like they don't even hold hands uh and if okay if I was Jim and I knew that a natural disaster was coming and it could possibly be my last day on earth I'd spend it smooching sorry but I would well right <laughs> so it, in the progression of this fanfic I understand why they were maybe otherwise occupied but yeah but but like you're right that even at the very very end the disaster is past. They're talking about their future together. We've established physical attraction. These are not like, you know, asexual people. 
like th- then you have them kiss like at the, at the end you're closing out the fanfic you have them kiss right like you do yeah they could have easily put that kiss at the end when they say they're gonna buy a place together yeah yeah like that would have yeah. been the most natural place in the world to have like some a little bit of the, male male physical affection there male 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 whatever they call it male uh, some male of male male attraction, attraction. <laughs> yes yeah. no there was like i don't know it was something anyway with that line they had but like they could have kissed in the bathtub male appreciation they were male yeah, appreciation yes. thank you no but they were like cuddling naked in the bathtub and yet they still did not kiss i'm like one <laughs> kiss it doesn't have to lead to anything like come on yeah man. yeah, yeah. For sure. i just wanted that one sweep him off his feet kiss in a disaster like type situation that's all just because it's your it could be your last day on earth you don't know get that smooch in buddy and when we were off the air i was commenting the chaos blue that like not even having read any other sentinel fan fiction it's obvious that like having a partner with super senses is just made for writing these scenes of like physical contact like it it writes itself practically that's right yeah (laughs) Yeah, they do get pretty creative in this fandom as far as that goes. So, <laughs> it word, is, word, it, word to the wise. <laughs> it is also surprising that, yeah, like, well, because it's never from Jim's perspective, but like sometimes Blair sort of intuits what Jim's thinking. Mm-hmm. It's just like in that scene where they had physical contact, it's so glossed over. Like, you feel like there should have been the same sort of spark there was when he was sensing the natural disaster, and yet, kind of nothing. So I'm going to call that my criticism. There we go. <laughs> yeah, my criticism is, I think, it's, it's one that I always come back to, I feel like. Maybe it's too much my go-to, but it's like, the, the story's a little bit fuzzy around the edges. It could be a little bit tighter. And I feel like the baby thing is a symptom of that. But also it's just, we spend a lot of time with these secondary characters, like... Simon, but also like Daryl, like various other characters, you know, on the force, you know, there's that reporter scene. I don't know. It's like sometimes I wasn't sure how much I needed to be paying attention to parts of it. Like how much of this is just kind of flavor and how much of this is kind of important to the narrative was sometimes not clear to me when reading it. And it made it it made it a little bit hard for me to keep the order of events and relationship between things firmly in mind when we were talking about it right here. And to some extent, I think that really works for this story. Specifically, the whole disaster prep and then um, and then rescue part, it all blurs together in my mind, but it's kind of in a really appropriate way where it's like, okay, it's one thing after another. We can't rest. We're keeping going. Like the, the, the energy level is kind of constant and like the level of tension is kind of constant. We got to keep going. We got to keep going until finally it's over. And that actually seems like a very good way to convey that situation. But other times I just feel like maybe it could have kept a bit sharper focus on the things it was most interested in conveying. Like, I, I don't know, maybe it could have been more about the community stepping up. Like it's called Unsung. But a whole lot of it is about that deepening relationship between si- Jim and not Simon and Jim, uh, Jim and Blair, and may- maybe it, maybe maybe, Simon. maybe less so. <laughs> maybe Simon. <laughs> maybe also Lily. Let's just get everyone in there, right? Um, yeah, no, it's it's a good point though. Like, it's like this author had an idea of of certain things they wanted to do, 
but they didn't quite follow through everything, like especially because it's told to us a lot about like the, when the press, there's a lot of like mm-hmm. press and paparazzi that, well, they say paparazzi, but I feel like it's just press, like it isn't paparazzi people who stalk yeah, celebrities. Specifically yeah, paparazzi. They use the word paparazzi, but I think they just mean like a lot of journalists um, running around, like trying to get quotes and it's like, these are the heroes, blah, 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 or they're trying to undermine them. And, but we, we kind of get that told to us rather than shown to us in a lot of ways, I suppose, except for Blair and Jim, because we're in their narrative. Tori, did you have something else to add or should we move on to praise? Oh, no, I feel like I was like moving my criticism around with yours, like we were all doing it in this nebulous sort of connected way. I kind of got to my points through the vehicle of y'all. So Uh, are you suggesting that you have an intuitive understanding of like how, you know, we talk that you... Yeah. Have in some sort of shamanic sense. I have heightened physical and emotional senses. Yes, that's what oh, I'm okay. saying. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, that's a good point. It seems like there's an implication that Jim has a uh, heightened emotional awareness as well mm. in this. I-, I thought maybe if anyone did Blair did, I don't know. Maybe? Yeah. I, I don't know. More Blair. Jim kind of, Yeah. Not so aware, maybe. Maybe not emotional. Just like awareness of like people's thoughts or perspective. I don't yeah, know. That's... They say something about that. Yeah, yeah. Now that you're saying that, I think there was a line in there somewhere where just for this particular natural disaster and his heightened sensitive uh, abilities during this, you know, natural disaster uh, thing. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did sort of have a heightened awareness of you know how people are feeling how people are emotionally responding to the disaster mm-hmm. and the tragedy of it and so he's able to respond in kind in a way that he may not be able to when he's just natural gym like everyday cop gym so. so here's what it was yeah he can pick up how the baby's feeling even though mm. he's not there to her yet he can pick up on how the mother's feeling when he hasn't mm. like he starts to identify the mother by like the fact she's holding it you know a piece of clothing that looks like the baby's clothing but she also he also picks up on her feelings so i was like is that a thing in the sentinel like it's not it's not which is again why this is like an au light (laughs) you know the alternate universeness of it is that the this author really is pushing the boundaries of what jim can actually do per canon and just asking you know the question what if he could do this or what if he could do that and it's not something that he could necessarily do all the time but when he does this whole going under you know kind of thing they did for this story maybe he does have those abilities we don't know and that's kind of the fun of the sentinel is even in canon throughout the show there's always that question of what else can jim do (laughs) that we don't know that's always a possibility in this context and i i read it just as well, he's hyper aware of, you know, he can hear their heartbeat. He can, you know, like hear the sounds that they're making and like, you know, feel, I don't know, uh, t- taste, taste their sorrow. Um, <laughs> maybe like, you know, oh see God. their. <laughs> what color is their aura? <laughs> yeah. Uh, OK. N- now that I'm saying it out loud, maybe it doesn't make as much sense as it seemed to make when I was reading it. But I, I thought it was just like being hyper aware of whatever signals they're putting out. Like physiologically or whatever it might be um i actually think that would be super interesting if they went in depth more about it because like it would involve both of the skill sets he has right like the ability to like 
perceived sensor sensor over sensor sensory perception his ability with sensory perception and his ability to analyze what those context clues might mean right like what does this heart rate mean but at the same time it's like i don't know if you can tell from someone's racing heart they're feeling guilt i'm just saying okay quick aside in the show does jim have weird eating habits because of his hyper taste and smell absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely it, in one of the first yeah, episodes the, that's the yeah. pilot yeah mm-hmm. he's like yep. this food that's the first time he realizes he's, this food is fucking awful <laughs> his ex-wife is like it's fine and he's like no it's yeah. gross <laughs> turns out it just had paprika in it but the paprika was enough to make him yeah. just go nuts over it yeah it was terrible so that makes total sense yeah he, he yeah. should be like the pickiest eater you could imagine yeah, yeah. He's picky with food, picky with like scents and smells. So you have to be really careful what you're wearing around him, what soaps you're using, because he can pick up all, all of it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it's kind of like having crazy allergies almost in a way. Relatable. Well, let's move on to our last praise for the story. What do we want to call out as especially liking in this story? I loved how the story was so well written i mean i've read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sentinel fan fictions i have so many different stories that i adore this was definitely one that's on my my top list legion is a wonderful writer i think um and i just thought that there were some really beautiful lines in here that kind of stick with you and um it's always just a pleasure to read i've read it many times by this point and i uh i always enjoy going back to it um and then I loved, uh, and and you alluded to this, um, Amato, about just how immersive the story was, especially in certain sections where she's sort of setting up the natural disaster. And then when the natural disaster actually happens and the immediate aftermath of that, I felt so immersed in that. You know, I've seen a lot of disaster movies by this point, and it almost, that's what it felt to me, was so immersive. And, um, and I definitely felt like I got some sort of emotional reaction just going through that, you know? Um, so I thought that the author did a really, really great job because this could have been handled so so poorly, I think, with the the subject material, but the way that she did it was just, I thought it was so immersive and just beautiful. I agree with that. Um, I think I've, I've added a lot of praise for like how I feel like, even though like the, the flow is a little in and out, I actually think the pacing is is really strong. Like it draws us and tethers us, and then it moves us back to, you know, summaries. But what I would highlight the most is those pieces of writing. Like I started to read this quote earlier, and then I realized it was the wrong context. But I'll read it now. It's um. 36 hours after he crawled under a table to wait and see if death would be the next journey he took with his partner. Blair slowly reconnected to a world that he had been watching from a great distance as through a telescope. Safe inside that merciful cushion, he had spent his body to do what it was required, but his heart and spirit had been spared feeling anything but tremendous compassion for the destruction and death that Mother Earth had unwillingly and unhappily delivered on her children. I just think that's such a good description of like, what it feels like to go through a traumatic event like to feel that buffer like you could intellectually remove yourself because you have to but there's just so much feeling there like you know it's there um 
the language is just really pretty a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the language is gorgeous. She did a beautiful job. And there's another one too. It's this one's short. It's um when they're in the bathtub together. It's like, oh yeah, it's Jim inviting Blair into the tub. I think Jim, or, and then then Blair says. I take you up on that, I might get too comfortable, he said, after a pause that was easy for all the weight of expectancy in it. <laughs> like, yeah, that communicates so much in so few words. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you know, for my praise, I guess I'm going to have to cancel out my criticism. Because now that I think about it, I think my favorite thing about it is the community featuring where, like, it's. Jim and Blair and Jim, you know, Jim especially are exceptional in how much good they can do. But the fanfic is so thorough about making it. No, they're not. But they're not unique in wanting to do as much good as they can. Not by a long shot. And like that, that urge by everybody to like help out is so pervasive. And like, you know, that's why the title is there and all that. And I think that that warm feeling is probably my favorite thing because it would be relatively easy to write a story, I would imagine, just about the the two people you're really, really interested in hooking up, and here's the circumstances that enable that to happen. But, like, there's more going on around them. And that wouldn't be as possible without the the kind of, like, narrative, um, like, little bit of, of extension that happens in the story. And I also do really like the kind of, like, tense disaster movie energy of that portion of the story as well. So I think it maybe it needs to be the way that it is to have the particular strengths that it does. And also, you know, I, I haven't seen The Sentinel. So some of the time I was just like, okay, it's another character. This is like another police officer. How much do I need to worry about them? But that might just be partially me and I should be used to there being minor characters who make reoccurring appearances on this show. But I already know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure, for sure. I can absolutely see how not knowing who all the characters are, you wouldn't know, right? What characters you need to pay attention to. And which ones you can kind of just go, eh, because right. they don't, you know, matter to the whole, the whole rest of the story. So <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> but yeah, it was a very pleasant read, both from the writing perspective and from the warm fuzzies perspective. This might be the fuzziest thing we've read <laughs> lately in the end. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. So. Mm, Yay. <laughs> I'm so glad you thought it was fuzzy because that was my goal. I wanted to bring you something fuzzy today. To balance out the last story that we read together, which was that (laughs) A-team story that was just the darkest thing. Oh my God. (laughs) Chaos Blue was pointing out that I'm the one that brought that one to the table. Like it was on, you know, my list of of stories Mm. that were supposed to be good. She did not recommend that one. But it was still (laughs) on my watch and I still felt bad about it. So I, like, I, I resolved to bring you something warm and fuzzy today. Thank you. Though, I mean, yeah, that A-Team fic was by far not the darkest thing we've read, I don't think, right? I mean, I don't well, know about actually, by actually, maybe far. not by far. No, you're uh, right. It was, okay, you know what? Let's not reflect on that. Let's, let's keep with the warm fuzzies. Um, This very sort of 90s, early 2000s theming, television theming of things being grand disasters but all like working out well in the end but yeah it's okay in the end because people are good 
Exactly. Yeah. Hopeful resolution. Very humanistic. People are inherently good. Yes. Speaking of hopeful resolutions, I think we need to bring this episode to a close with the hope that Chaos Blue, we will have you back on at some future date to enjoy your like great company and knowledge of things that we don't know about. Anytime. Always happy to do it. <laughs> the next time you read an old fanfic from some you know fandom and you're like, I want to talk with some people about it, we are here to be your book club. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> we are always sitting here in this room just waiting for old fan fiction to find us. Nine to five. It's our day job. <laughs> I was going to say 24-7, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, in shifts. Some of us are more committed than others. <laughs> well, I do have children, so sorry I have to duck out sometimes. That's uh, no excuse. <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> Before I lead us out, Chaos Blue, could you tell us what you do on the internet and where people can find you? Yes, absolutely. I am the host and producer of the Fanfic Maverick podcast. What I do on my show is I bring on a new fanfiction writer on every episode. We talk about the fandoms that they love and the fanfictions that they write. And we just have a really good time digging into various fandoms, characters, fanfictions, it's all uh, it's all good. So if anybody wants to uh, listen to some episodes where I get to talk to amazing fan fiction authors, you can come on and check out my show. What I do is I mark each episode um, by fandom because the show that I run is multi-fandom, um, just like yours. So I do mark the particular fandom on the episode. So if you have any particular fandoms that you're interested in, you should just scroll through the different episodes that are available and see if there's this particular fandom that catches your eye. Um, the best place, I think, to check out the show would be the uh, the podcast website. I'm at fanficmaverickpodcast.com. And uh, I'm on a bunch of socials, too. Um, but on Twitter, you can find me at Fanfic Maverick. And let me just stress the two points you made there, Chaos Blue, is that your podcast is a great, wonderful podcast to hear actual fanfic authors instead of whoever True. Tori and I are talking about fandoms that people actually <gasps> care we? about in the year of our Lord 2023, unlike whatever we talk about. So, look, the appeal has got to be there for a lot of you listeners. Absolutely. And I would put a high recommend, as Del would put it, a chef's kiss on uh, Chaos Blues podcast, Fanfic Maverick. So please check it out if you haven't already. I'd be surprised if you hadn't, but please do. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. This was episode 148 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, unsung by Legion, originally published online in 2003 in the My Mongoose Seasons of Love e-zine. You can find it on squidge.org and also on AO3. I'll be providing both links in the show notes. And uh, if you enjoyed this, it turns out there are 109 other fanfics of The Sentinel by Legion also on AO3. So there's your reading list for the next year or so. And I don't know how fast you read. Report back when you get through all of them. The intro song for the podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. You can find that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Our podcast is edited by Della Rose, who made a note that in addition to the episode of Xena where she kisses Gabrielle, there's also an episode with some sort of beauty contest or something where she kisses a trans woman. So now you've got two episodes to look for in the TV guide when it releases in the newspaper. 
You can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, you can contact us on Twitter at retrofanfic. For now, we'll see how long that lasts. Facebook at retrofanfic or send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com. Leaving comments or reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast service you use is also greatly appreciated. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. And I'm Chaos Blue. We're just three Earth life forms trying to save as many lives as possible. Until next time, take care. Bye. What would they say at the end of the Sentinel? Nothing. Nothing. They're just watch. <laughs> it would just be like listening flute music. It, that's what it would be. Just <laughs> drumming and flute music the whole way. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you've got to be used to this because you probably record all of the happy hours, right? Or, you know, use on someone's Patreon. I, I'm not going to lie. I've thought about it. <laughs> we have we the weirdest conversations. I, I, I know, mean, though. I mean, the podcaster brain has thought about it. It's like, this is good content. We could do that. But if I, if I knew we were recording, I don't know. Yeah, it's It'd be a little stuff. bit different. Sometimes we're talking about personal stuff. So Yeah. And, and sometimes I call him auto podcast daddy. So I'm not sure I'd want that. Report. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Not on record. <laughs> it never leaves this room. No worries. <laughs> we are recording now. <laughs> Oops. <laughs>